Hello, everyone. Welcome to Joe's Pub. My name is Amanda Stern. I'm the host uh, and curator of the Happy Ending Music and Reading series. Um, tonight's theme is reality and scandal. And in honor of the theme, I dyed my hair in my bathroom today and invited my ex-boyfriend to sit in the audience. He accepted. Um, so top to bottom, reality and scandal. I'm a method host. Um, also, I just want you to know that you should be a bit grateful because in honor of Depression Night, um, I didn't take my Celexa for three days. So you got off easy. Um, so this specific show is actually one of three a year I'll be doing in partnership with Yaddo, one of the country's most prestigious artist colonies. For those of you unfamiliar with Yaddo, um, getting residencies is, is so competitive Simply getting rejected is an honor. <laughs> so um, all the artists tonight uh, who are going to appear, uh, including your host, but minus the musical guest, have been uh, to Yaddo. And um, the president of Yaddo, Elena Richardson, is here tonight as well, which is extremely exciting, if not a little awkward, because she came with my ex-boyfriend. Um, <laughs> but he's Colin Firth, so it really it all evens out. <laughs> Um, let me just quickly tell you the rules for those of you who have never been to Happy Ending before. I require my authors, who I actually own because I buy them on Amazon, um, to read for about 10 minutes and then they are required to take some sort of a risk on stage. They have to do something they've never done before on stage. So for instance, Benjamin Percy bench pressed me. Um, A.M. Holmes speed dated four members of the audience. The filmmaker Jonathan Cowett uh, announced his home address to everyone, but he lives in Queens, so that's not much of a risk. Um, and Jesse Ball um, told everyone how to steal books from Barnes & Noble. Um, so that's what happens with the authors. The uh, musical guest plays six songs. Uh, one of his songs, is requ his requirement is to play a cover song and try and attempt to get the entire audience that would be you, to sing along. So those are the rules. Uh, we have a totally amazing show tonight. Helen Schulman, Jesse Browner, and Walter Kern are the authors, and Mark Eitzel is the musical guest. Uh, so that is that. So without further ado, um, a musician who I've long admired and whose music was introduced to me by my ex-boyfriend, who is in the audience, um, I give you uh, the man I am now officially madly in love with, Mark Eitzel. Here's a song about a male stripper. If you want to see something patriotic, well, I know this stripper. He don't look that good, but he has an all-American smile. That fills his underwear with all the lonely dollars From all the lonely men Who no one ever suffers Who wait around this bar Spending all their lonely hours But no one's afraid And no one's running for cover Cause the farther you run away The more you have to hide in the dark 
White as the worm that crawls in the patriot's heart Now it was so red, white and blue The way he worked the bar Selling his embraces like Mr. President Or some fallen star And no one here cares, babe, if you're worldly or wise They're just looking for men with sin in their eyes And he always says the same thing Well, he says, he says, well, how you doing, baby? I'm your rod and your staff And for a tip You could touch me And after a few tequilas Well, I become something holy And this shitty little bar With its sweating mirrors And its mildewed ceiling Is more full of love Yeah, than even natural selection And dollar for dollar, babe, it's a better bargain. The more you pay, the more you can see it all fall apart. And dollars pour like ashes from the patriot's heart. And he knows your good time will kill him. But the thought of getting old, well, it does not thrill him. He says, give me all your money and don't tell me what you're thinking. I'm the past you wasted. I'm the future you're obliterating. Oh, come on, Grandpa, remind me what we're celebrating that your heart finally dried up or that it finally stopped working you gotta know how to make a dead man come you gotta learn all the undertaker's arts and make the rest shine like the alcohol that preserves the patriot's heart we all want some of your patriot's Oh, give us a little of your patriot's heart Later see him fade with the dawn And a pile of George Washington's His head is in a spin He's happy to pass out again He would rather fade into the static than Hear the violins that whine Like old lovers who whine that they love him He would rather laugh alone in the dark With the soft hands of heaven Yeah, because they leave him alone Just him and his entertainment system he does it for the money, but he gives more than he's given. Yeah, he does it for the money, but he gives more than he's given. And it's only when he's naked that he feels his heart in the whorehouse desert of the Patriot's heart. Everyone wants a piece of your patriot's heart 
Everyone wants some of your patriot talk. Oh, it's so big and round, your patriot's heart. It's so strong and firm, your patriot's heart. I don't think I can fit it in my mouth, your patriot's heart. That's a story about a male stripper. So the um, first author of the night is taller than I am, so I will raise that. In fact, all authors are taller than I am. In fact, all people. Uh, Helen Schulman is the author of the novels A Day at the Beach, P.S., The Revisionist, and Out of Time, and the short story collection Not a Free Show. Her new novel, This Beautiful Life, is both a New York Times bestseller and a New York Times 2011 notable. Her fiction and nonfiction have appeared in Vanity Fair, Time, Vogue, GQ, The Paris Review, and the New York Times Book Review. She's a tenured associate professor of writing at the New School, and I'm very happy that she's here with us. Ladies and gentlemen, Helen Schulman. So it's such a privilege and a pleasure to be here for Yaddo. Yaddo is one of my favorite places on earth. And it's easy to read to you because I can't see you, so I can't get nervous. Um, I'm reading from my new book, This Beautiful Life. Uh, it's kind of hard to uh, find a little piece to read from, so I kind of cobbled something together. It's two-thirds of the way through the book. The central event of the book is that a girl named Daisy, trying to win the affections of uh, a boy she likes, sends him a video of her performing a sexual act. The boy's name is Jake, and when he gets it, it's so red hot, he presses forward and send, and it goes to his friend Luke, who sends it to his friends from camp, and by the end of the weekend, it is all over the internet, all over the city, all over the world. Um, so a lot of things happen before this point in the story, uh, but one of them is that Jake has been suspended from school, and uh, his dad has pulled every string in the book and gotten him back in and so what I'm going to be reading is the day he gets back and the only other thing you need to know is that Luke's uh, girlfriend Audrey is the love of Jake's life unrequited hey Audrey Jake said she turned her head up and to the right to see him sup Jake said Audrey squinting into the light do you mind if I sit down Jake said a free country said Audrey she turned back to look in the same direction she'd been looking in before he came and disturbed her Jake sat down next to her. He dropped his backpack down next to his feet. He stared at the tops of his sneakers. He looked over at her knees, her thighs. Even as narrow as they were, they were fanned out a little pressed against the marble. Jake wanted more than anything to bury his face into her lap, but he didn't. Instead, he raised his gaze. She was so gorgeous in a boy-like way. Her eyes, her nose, her beautiful mouth so totally elegantly balanced. She inhaled again, then tipped her neck back, exposing her long golden throat, and exhaled up into the sky so the smoke would not get into his eyes. I'm sorry, said Jake. Why are you apologizing to me, said Audrey. That's kind of funny. What do you mean, said Jake. Well, it's Daisy's life you destroyed. Not mine, said Audrey. I didn't mean to, said Jake. 
I didn't ask her to do it or to send it to me. Who cares, said Audrey. We don't ask for a lot of things. There was silence for a while. His mind reeled. He didn't know how to express himself or how to reach her. She took a last drag and dropped the cigarette into the thick green grass and ground it out with her foot. Then she picked up the butt and put it into the pocket of her black sweatshirt. She was shivering, but it wasn't cold, and she didn't put the sweatshirt on. Instead, she crossed her legs in a half lotus up on the bench. She looked Jake in the eye. Hers were inky black, and she lined them with black liner. Lashes, eyeliner, iris, all the same color. Her teeth seemed to chatter a little. You're cold, said Jake. He picked up her sweatshirt off the ground and offered it to her. It was 70 degrees out. Do you have any idea how hard it is to be a girl, said Audrey, legs crossed, teeth chattering, ignoring his outstretched hand? Yes, said Jake, I know. The double standard, do you mean? Like empowerment and stuff? He brought her sweatshirt into his lap. It was soft. He petted it like a small animal. Audrey reached down into her bag. It was black suede and had long black fringes with black beads threaded on them. It looked vintage, like she'd either spent a lot of money on it or found it in a shop in Brooklyn. She snaked her golden arm into the bag and brought out a pack of Marlboros. She opened it and shook out a cigarette and a lighter. She pressed down on the little petal of the lighter and lit up. Audrey inhaled deeply, and it was as if her body was a balloon and the smoke lifted her. Like helium, it raised her to her feet. Standing, her T-shirt rose, and he saw the gold ring piercing her navel. It winked at him for a second before she exhaled and the T-shirt came back down. Audrey stared off at a stand of trees. You are just an idiot boy, said Audrey. You are all just idiot boys. Someday I'll be old and ugly, and nobody will want to fuck me, and I won't have to deal with any of you any longer. I'm really looking forward to that, said Audrey. Then she picked up her sweatshirt and tied it around her tiny waist. Like the sleeves were black velvet ribbon and Audrey herself was a package, a little precious gift. She slung that cool bag over her shoulder and she started walking. She started walking away from Jake and all the idiot boys, walking away from the prison of her youth and beauty and into the hard-fought-for loneliness of her future. Audrey walked away from Jake, down the path toward the stone gates of the school, and there was nothing he could do to stop her, or if there was, he was clueless. Thank you, Helen, for that. Um, Second author of the night is Jesse Browner. Jesse Browner is the author, most recently, of the novels The Uncertain Hour and Everything Happens Today. He has translated works by Paul Iliard, Jean Cocteau, that's right, I'm French, and Rainer Maria Rilke, among others. He is a contributor to Nest Gastronomica, Book Forum, and the Paris Review, among others. He lives in New York City, and it's my great pleasure to give you Jesse Browner. Um, well, th there's a little bit of a problem, because Amanda would have you believe that the three novelists who are reading tonight are united by the fact that we're all Yaddo fellows. In fact, it seems to be that we're united by the fact that we've all written novels about teenage boys behaving very badly. <laughs> all right. Um, in my book, it takes place uh, all in one day. 
the hero Wes is uh, facing a number of dilemmas. Uh, the first is that he has recently lost his, just the night before, lost his virginity to a girl he doesn't like, whereas he's been saving himself for the past two years for a girl he's been madly in love with. The other is that he is a straight-A student in English, and for the first time in his life, he has had a paper rejected by his teacher, and he has three days to write another one. If he were ever to be a serious writer, Wes reasoned, he would have to learn to embrace solitude and silence. Though we did not suppose that he would suffer from loneliness, all he'd ever wanted, as far back as he could remember, was to be left alone, like Helmholtz, where the mind can expand to fill the vast silence, where a man can find peace from chatter and temptation and opinion. A one-room stone cottage with small leaded windows and a large fireplace glacial runoff to bathe in, unpolluted, unobstructed views for the eyes to linger upon in those blank moments before inspiration strikes. In the morning, black coffee from a mocha pot and a solid wedge of black bread spread with creamery butter and lingonberry jam. At night, a roaring fire, a mutton chop charred in the brazier, a peaty single malt, a pipe, maybe an old radio for the dramas and sports cars. Where, Wes wondered, on that rocky volcanic plain, would he find a steady supply of firewood or coffee, whiskey, tobacco, mutton? Helmholtz, because he was technically a ward of the state, would have all these delivered to him free of charge, and maybe a girl every so often, because those people were so keen on the pacifying effects of extremely impersonal and uninhibited sexual encounters. But Wes would have to be realistic if he were to survive and work. After all, writers in the real world do not have the luxury of being exiled by benevolent dictatorships. They have to survive by their own wits. Either you find a way to live on the cheap or you sell yourself into lifelong drudgery. Wes planned to pull a Helmholtz, but he thought that it might be better to start off somewhere more temperate to begin with until he'd honed his survival skills. Somewhere like Newfoundland, or the highlands of Scotland, maybe, where he could trap grouse and grow winter barley and drive into the village once a week for supplies and a pint of bitter, whatever that was, at the local pub, <laughs> and where he could roam the scented gorse in rubber boots with a fowling piece on his hip and a brown lab at his heels. But even then, where was he to get the money for rent? The car, the dog, the shotgun, the boots. How long would he have to work in this fallen world so that he could escape it. His father, after all, had pandered his entire life to a similar dream. And just look at where that had got him. Loveless marriage, indifferent kids, a job he hated, exile to the basement. He couldn't even afford to live in a place of his own, which would have suited everybody. It was no wonder he was such a loser. Wes was absolutely determined to avoid his dad's fate, to forswear all the entanglements. Partly because, it's dad, partly because it wasn't so hard to see himself behaving exact, exactly as his father behaved if he were in the same predicament. So Wes decides not to write his paper about um, Brave New World and starts to think about writing it about um, War and Peace, which he read a few weeks earlier. The book fell open at page 467. <laughs> 
and Wes began to read. Prince Andre was listening to Natasha sing and was evidently on the verge of falling in love with her. Typically, Andre was choking on, her own, on his own philosophical boner. Quote, a sudden vivid awareness of the terrible opposition between something infinitely great and indefinable that was in him and something narrow and fleshly that he himself and even she was, unquote. Wes found himself distracted almost immediately. What was that supposed to mean? That our real selves are not our bodies? The tragedy of an expansive soul confined to a fragile, decaying cage of flesh? Not exactly a shattering insight. And yet, as he forced himself to read on, Wes remembered with vivid clarity precisely what had been on his mind when he had flagged this passage. It was an idea that had preoccupied him at the time, three weeks earlier when he'd read the book over the course of a single weekend, that life is, or should be, a perpetual interior war between alienated factions of human nature. It was only because Tolstoy was so ham-handed with characterization that Wes had been able to recognize in his writing the cartoonish extremes of a genuinely subtle and complex problem he'd been trying to work out for himself. What Wes had finally come to see as he watched Prince Andre fall in love with Natasha is that Tolstoy had divided his characters between strugglers like Andre and Pierre and acceptors like Boris and Berg, and that Tolstoy was firmly on the side of the strugglers, people who were continuously engaged in an inner battle with their own natures and received ideas of the proper way to live, even if it makes them miserable and turns every little decision into a swamp of confusion and loneliness. Walter Kern is a novelist, essayist, and critic who lives in Livingston, Montana, on purpose. Uh, his latest book is Lost in the Meritocracy, a memoir. He is also the author of the novels Up in the Air, Thumbsucker, Mission to America, The Unbinding, and She Needed Me, as well as the short story collection, My Hard Bargain. His books, Thumbsucker and Up in the Air, were turned into feature films starring, respectively, Vincent D'Onofrio and George Clooney. It is my great pleasure to give you the scandal maker, Walter Kern. You know, I became a writer for the same reason I think all people who become writers do it. Uh, I wanted to find a way to make a living from being unhappy and unpopular. The problem was that for years I had very few reasons to be unhappy. But uh, in the last six months, I've been sort of given my wish. Uh, I've been given a kind of unhappiness that... Uh, you're going to regret laughing in a minute. That, 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 that few writers can ask for. I mean, uh, a sort of cornucopia of misery has poured out over my, you know, swollen head. Uh, and this is real. Uh, three months ago, uh, my mother died very suddenly at age 70. And, you know, I'm at the point where I think I'm past all the Kubler-Ross stages. You know, uh, um, I'm even past acceptance. Uh, actually, I've started over. Um, and uh, 
my, my, my reaction to this, because I used to lie in bed and think, you know, my mother was from this Hungarian peasant stock that you expect to live forever. I used to think, what's going to happen when, you know, I have to take care of mom? And that wasn't what happened. Anyway, of all her effects, there was only one that I really wanted, which was her Bible. She uh, read the Bible constantly, not uh, for religious reasons, however. Um, she was a student. She had wanted to be a doctor, and she had become a nurse because of her patriarchal, uh, condescending father. And uh, so she made up for what she perceived to be a lack of accomplishment in her life by teaching herself things. So, you know, between phone calls, I'd call every two weeks. I'd say, so what have you been doing, Mom? And she'd say, well, I learned Greek. Um, uh, you know, I'd call and say, uh, what, what are you doing Right now, Mom. Yeah, I just finished The Rise and Fall of the Roman Empire. Uh, not the abridged edition for the third time. Um, and I knew she was reading the Bible in this way. So, you know, in that moment when you are lowest in your morality, which is right after a parent dies and you get into the house and uh, your brother's there too, um, I looked around and, you know, it wasn't the silver I wanted. It wasn't the jewelry. It was this big, fat King James study Bible with a huge editorial board uh, listed in the front that included Jerry Falwell. I thought, you know, which footnotes are his? Um, anyway, I started reading this thing because uh, I honestly needed consolation. And it was a way of having a conversation with her. She had notes in the margins written in red. Um, they were this sort of thing. Um, God in the Old Testament never comes to the defense of the little people. He's always on the side of kings and uh, tyrants. She read the Bible in order to argue with it, I think. And when I came here tonight, I wasn't going to read this part, but I noticed, you know, that the theme was reality and scandal. And uh, I think the scandal of the Bible is that people think it represents reality. I started writing about my Bible study, my self-imposed Bible study, on a blog that has about 17 readers and was set up using some free Google software that, um, you know, uh, makes it look perpetually amateur. So I started writing this Bible blog. At night, I'd read it. And uh, this was last week. I mean, I'm making it sound very historical. Uh, and... Uh, and, 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 you know, by the time I'd finish and by the time I'd start writing, it'd be 2 a.m. or so. And, you know, I'm in that kind of mood at 2 a.m. Uh, very confused mood, in fact. You know, if, if it's the word of God, then I don't think we have a right to do too much interpretation. I think we have to pretty much take it as it lays or, you know, play it as it lays. So uh, excuse me if I take uh, all the born-again's word for it. Um, now, the reason I'm reading this tonight is that writing this in my little room in Livingston, Montana, with the snow flying at 3 a.m., I have this impression that no one will ever read it. And, you know, it's, it's fair to say that few have, but uh, this week in New York Magazine, does anyone know that feature in the back, the approval matrix? And... Uh, there in the high, high corner of brilliant and highbrow was Walter Kern's Bible blog. Thanks, Mom. Uh, so you're, the, the titles are going to get funny, 
But uh, the first wasn't because I wasn't planning on this being a series. Now, you've all read the Bible, I'm sure, so uh, it needs no introduction. But it begins with the book Genesis. Um, the book Genesis is about God's relation with his creation, uh, which is a, a peculiar relation. I mean, uh, God basically made a huge mistake in creating man and spends the first part of Genesis trying to uh, you know, correct himself. Um, I mean, until he gets to Noah, everybody is pretty much a total loss. So here's night one. My first night of Bible study, a brief report. At last, I understand the Eden story in Genesis is about a drug bust and its aftermath. It begins by discussing the prohibition of a potent psychedelic substance, a plant or a fruit that grants those who ingest it personal access to divine capacities. Most damningly to those who wrote the story, with the goal, I suppose, of consolidating their hold on law-giving and other holy prerogatives, this prohibited substance sensitizes the mind to the presence of good and evil, essentially making priests of those who take it and making other conventional priests redundant. Then the people take the stuff. As it happens, the creature who assists them dwells as close to nature, to the soil, and as far from hierarchies and sky gods as it is possible to get. The serpent, by virtue of living on its belly, is a most earthy, egalitarian animal. The rest of the story concerns the people's punishment for unlocking their latent godliness through commerce with the psychoactive plant. Banishment and hard labor are some of their punishments. And shame, of course, which is the fiercest lashing of all because the people give it to themselves. How weird, how unexpected and how weird that the establishing myth or narrative of Jewish and Christian morality deals not with murder, deceit, or theft, but with altered consciousness, with tripping. How strange to learn that our original sin, at least in the minds of those who wrote the Bible, was closer to taking mushrooms than taking a life. Thank you, everyone, for coming. Thank you to Walter and to Mark and to Tony and to Michael and to Jesse and to Helen and to Yaddo, Elena Richardson, to everyone at uh, Joe's Pub. 